Every time is 25 minutes after 11 o'clock here on the Owl Prowl, Jack Collinwood. Are you smart? Who's the guy that took the fuel out of my place? Did you, did you, did you empty all the fuel out of my space? Are you smart, aren't you? Back again? I was over the Barard Inlet and I ran out of gas. Now, this is not, this is not normal because normally I have enough gas in. Oh, you must have let it out, didn't you? (laughs) Tell me now. Come on, I'll remove your nose. This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, part two of Murder by Milkshake. After the city analyst report came back showing Esther Castellani's organs had 1,500 times the normal amount of arsenic that should have been found in a human body, her case officially became a homicide. Vancouver coroner Glenn MacDonald arranged to have Esther's newly buried body exhumed and Staff Sergeant Bill Porteous was put in charge of the police investigation. He assigned homicide detectives Alex Reed and Archie Mackay to the case. And early on the morning of August 3rd, 1965, Coroner MacDonald and the police detectives, as well as staff from the lab, arrived at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Burnaby, armed with shovels and grub hose. They gathered around the grave that held Esther Castellani's body and proceeded to dig up the casket that had been placed there only three weeks before. The men stowed the casket in the back of the black wagon and they drove to the morgue where the pathologist would perform a second, more extensive post-mortem. News of the exhumation shocked Esther's already devastated family. They gathered at the Luan's home that night. Esther's mother couldn't believe that a son-in-law had murdered her daughter. But Esther's sister Gloria did. She'd thought all along the way that it was Rini. Not surprisingly, the first interview on Detectives Reed and Mackay's list was Esther's husband, Rini. Their married life was normal, he told them, though they had the usual arguments. Esther nagged him about his long hours at the station, they were in debt before she went into hospital, and she had no life insurance. They couldn't afford the payments. After a couple of hours of questioning, Reed and Mackay drove Rini home and told him that they'd like to search his house. Reedy told them to go ahead. Reed looked in the cupboard under the kitchen sink. The small space was packed with ordinary household items, a bottle of Windex, Glide dishwashing liquid, Bon Amy cleaner, scuff pads, a shoeshine kit and a garbage pail. There was also a can of orthotriox, an arsenic-based weed killer, clearly marked as poison with a skull and crossbones on the label. When Reed asked Rini about it, Rini told them that he'd never seen it before. They opened the can and it looked to be about three centimetres down from the top. It was their first break. Rini may have been many things, but judging by the state of the backyard, he wasn't a gardener. They found no spraying instruments around the house or evidence that weed killer had been sprayed. And orthotriox was an odd choice for a residential garden. It was a strong herbicide that would kill not only weeds, 
but also the lawn and everything else on it. Next, the detectives questioned Esther's friends and co-workers, and the investigation quickly picked up steam when they discovered that Esther had told people that her husband was having an affair. To the detectives, it was already feeling like the age-old story of married man meets younger woman and murders inconvenient wife. And it was probably no coincidence, thought the detectives, that Esther started getting sick just after she confronted her husband about his mistress. The detectives then decided to take a closer look at Lolly. They found that she and Rini had applied for a joint mortgage in their married names to buy a house in East Vancouver while Esther was still alive. Lolly's landlords, Ron and Sylvia Smale, told police that Rini had been a frequent visitor and he had often had to be asked to move the CKW truck when it blocked access to their garage. When Lolly brought Rini upstairs to visit, they talked about Rini's impending divorce. The Smales were surprised to learn that he was still married. The detectives were very much looking forward to meeting Lolly. They arrived at a parent's Burnaby house at 9.30pm, where she was now living with Don. Lolly told Rita Mackay that she'd worked at CKW for three years and had known Rennie since 1964. She told them that she knew Rennie was married and they were just friends. There was no romance attached to his visits. Rita Mackay didn't believe a word of it. The detectives asked about the house that she'd tried to buy on Hoy Street. Lolly told them that she'd received $25,000 after the accidental drowning of her husband in 1962. But because she was presently unemployed, she needed to have a co-signer. She told the detectives that she was shocked when she and Rini visited the bank and found they'd filed a mortgage application in the names Rini and Adelaide Castellani. Lolly said that they didn't form a relationship until after the trip to Disneyland in July. When the detectives asked if she was now in a serious relationship with Rini, she told them that yes, they now planned to be married after the inquest for Esther was over. Reed told Lolly that the inquest would reveal that Esther was murdered and asked her who she thought gave Esther the arsenic. Lolly answered, I don't know, who would? A few years ago, I was lucky to inherit some beautiful pieces of antique jewellery from my grandmother. But the gold is old and thin and the rings are out of style. Erin Haken, a Vancouver jewellery designer and goldsmith, has convinced me to take them out of the safety deposit box. Erin will work with me at her Vancouver studio to create a one-off design that I'll be proud to wear every day and that will honour my nana. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Back at the morgue, the city analyst had already performed more than 300 tests on Esther's tissue, bone and hair and found huge quantities of arsenic all through her body. In Toronto, the Ontario Centre of Forensic Sciences had just had some stunning results using a nuclear reactor. This was the first time neutron activation had been used in a murder investigation in Canada and they were able to chart a timeline of when and how much arsenic Esther had received. The charts confirmed that Esther had received a steady supply of arsenic 
which corresponded to her acute bouts of gastroenteritis. It showed that she'd received a massive dose somewhere in the weeks before she died. While they couldn't pin down the precise date, they knew that Esther's health had improved over the nine days that Rini was on top of the BOMAC sign for the CKNW promotion, and then she'd got much worse the day after he came down. What the detectives couldn't understand was why Rini didn't have Esther's body cremated. The Roman Catholic Church had allowed cremation since 1963, as long as the ashes weren't scattered. Reed and Mackay thought that perhaps Rini had become arrogant and overconfident, and this was also the reason he hadn't bothered to get rid of the distinctive red and yellow striped can of orthotriox that they'd found under the kitchen sink with its missing three ounces, more than enough to cause death if given over a period of six or seven months. They had Rini on means, opportunity and motive, but it was still all circumstantial. Three months after Esther's death, CKNW boss Bill Hughes asked for and received a letter of resignation from Rini. And at the end of that month, he and Janine moved into a little bungalow that Lolly had bought on Argyle Street in East Vancouver. Esther's sister Gloria was now divorced, and her husband had taken their three daughters and moved to California. Rini made sure that Janine had no contact with her grandparents, aunts, or uncles. An inquest was held on December 1st of 1965 in the coroner's building on East Cordova Street. It was the first time that Esther's family had seen Rini since the night of the funeral, and they were shocked to see him with Lolly, who was wearing Esther's fur coat. They were also surprised to see that Rini had brought his lawyer. Twenty-seven people were questioned over the three days of the inquest, including Esther's friends and family. Rini's colleagues from CKNW and hospital medical staff. As was his right, Rini refused to testify. At the end of the third day of the inquest, the jury ruled that the cause of Esther's death was homicide by arsenic poisoning by person or persons unknown. Janine quickly adapted to living with her new mother and little brother. She didn't have a choice. Where am I going to go? He wouldn't let me go to my grandparents. Like, what am I going to do? When did he cut off contact? Right away. I don't remember seeing them because when I started public school, they would try to follow me home because they'd drive the car really slow, calling me. I remember my grandma just bawling, Janine, please, dear, come, please, we love you. And I'm just like running home. Like a crazy, because because he told me, you do not talk to them because they will take you away and you will not see me again. Pretty much kidnapped me and I would never see him again. I'm torn. What do I do? I, I you know, he's my dad. These are, And I, I loved my grandparents dearly, but I, um, I ran from them. I remember them going up my lane, me hanging laundry out on the laundry line, mm-hmm. me running in the house and... Lolly going out and said, leave her alone, and I was in the house. We closed the door. They said, it really was horrific for my grandmother. I think now how horrible that must have been. And all she wanted to do was give me some love and hug me. They used to leave me presents at the desk in David Thompson School, and the counselor would call me down, and coats and skirts and beautiful things. And I couldn't even phone and say thank you. 
I remember thinking it was weird that I couldn't see them, but I was so frightened. That's what he instilled in me, and I think that's pretty powerful, really powerful, because I was petrified of them, and I had no reason to be. So he did that, and um, I just think that's evil. On March 31st, 1966, five days after 2,000 marches, protesting the Vietnam War, held up traffic along Broadway on their trek to the Vancouver courthouse. Rini, a 40-year-old contractor and widower, and Lolly, a 26-year-old widow and homemaker, applied for a marriage licence. The detectives had put off arresting Rini for as long as possible because they wanted him to think that he'd gotten away with murder. That, they thought, would make him arrogant and sloppy and they hoped lead them to evidence that would strengthen their case for conviction. The marriage licence changed everything, because a wife couldn't be forced to testify against her husband. They arrested Rini before he and Lolly had a chance to marry. Detectives Reed and Mackay obtained an arrest warrant on April 6th, and along with Staff Sergeant Bill Porteous, went to the house on Argyle Street and arrested Rini just before midnight, and charged him with a capital murder of his wife, which meant he would also be eligible for the death penalty. We moved into a home in Vancouver that he must have purchased with Lolly before Mum was passed away. So we moved into that house and we were living like one big happy family. And then in April of 66, they came in the middle of the night and arrested him. And they did that because they knew there was two children in the house. They didn't want to come when we were awake. And they took him. And then when I got up in the morning, I noticed Lolly was really sad and I didn't know what was going on. And then she told me that he had been arrested. But he did call me at home. They must have let him call and said, you know, not to worry that he'd be home soon. Janine was allowed to finish her grade seven year at Little Flower Academy probably because the grandparents had paid the fees for the private girls' Catholic school. Shortly after the arrest, police paid a visit to Esther's sister Gloria, who had now remarried and was living with her new husband at her parents' house in Kitsilano. After Rennie was arrested, the police followed Gloria for quite a long time. They questioned her and eventually called her into Prosecutor Sam Toy's office. Toy told her that Rennie had said they'd had an affair and that she'd murdered Esther out of jealousy. Gloria denied ever having an affair with her brother-in-law. Mike Porteous was Superintendent of Major Crimes for the Vancouver Police Department when I interviewed him for my book in 2018. His uncle, Bill Porteous, was in charge of the Castellani investigation in 1965, and he became quite a legend in the police department and in his own family. I was curious how police techniques had changed over the last half century or so, and I asked Mike Portis if a similar case happened today, how the investigation would proceed. He told me that they'd be working with much more sophisticated forensic science, video footage, a team of at least 40 people, and Crown involvement. But even so, he said, in a circumstantial case like this, they would still have relied on a lot of traditional police work. 
with Mr. Castellano, like if, if it was a big case, you, you would form a large team, a video canvas team, a physical surveillance team, a forensic interview team, a forensic identification team. Like the detectives would touch none of the exhibits. All the signs would be done by specialists now, and it's a big fat deal. With murder cases, there's two parts to them, right? It's A, finding out who did it, which in the great majority of cases, they do find out who did it. And then the harder part is proving the case. Old-fashioned interviews and, and autopsies and stuff, or they don't change that much. So we would go and, and exhaust our traditional techniques and see if we could prove the case that way. If we can't meet the threshold of proof in that case, then we would go to more advanced covert techniques. In a circumstantial case, what you're doing is you're narrowing it down from being a broadly circumstantial case to still a circumstantial case supported by independent evidence. DNA, for example, which had become a staple of police work in the 1990s and a game-changer for solving criminal cases, is of little use in a murder where a husband and wife share the same home and the spouse is a suspect. It may have helped on the can of orthotriox, although Rini denied ever seeing it, and his fingerprints weren't found on the can. If he touched the can, it's likely his DNA would have shown up there, though. I asked Porteus why he thought Rini risked keeping the can of orthotriox in the house. Why didn't he just dump it somewhere in the three weeks after Esther's death and before the start of the police investigation? To me, it isn't that odd. How would he even know that that arsenic would ever show up? He's not a sophisticated criminal, right? This guy in the criminal world is kind of a putz, probably. He might be a smart guy, but he's probably going to be relatively uneducated in criminal techniques. It's also possible that he was establishing a reason for Esther's death. If arsenic had been detected, he could say that she was using the orthotriox to kill the weeds in the garden. Or after finding out about her husband's affair, she was poisoning herself to get Rini's attention. Porteus says that even today, with the great strides that we've made in science and technology, it's unlikely that arsenic would show up at an autopsy. I don't think it normally would come up generally at autopsy because they don't find things oftentimes at autopsy unless you're looking for them. So, you know, it's, it's more specific, right, because there's so many possible things. And that, you're right, that's such an unusual, weird sort of thing. Unless you had a reason to look for it, you wouldn't find it. If Esther was in hospital today and died and you found out it was arsenic, would you normally think it was a husband? Would you jump to that first? Yeah, I would. And you know why? One of the first things I learned was when I was a homicide investigator, what's called Occam's Razor. And the theory is, given a whole set of options, the most likely solution is almost always the right solution, if you know what I mean. So, for example, not even knowing that they're having an affair, if I get a husband-wife murder... My first suspect is the husband, almost always, mm. right off the bat. Like, statistically, that's the most likely. So if he's got a motive, come under the lens completely. And we would do things before we even interviewed him. We'd have probably intensive surveillance on him and find out what he did when first contacted with the police. Would he try to destroy evidence? Would he go and try and cover his tracks? And all those kinds of things, which are all techniques that we've used in the past and helped us solve cases, right? Do you see murders by poison these days? No, I would say generally no. When you see poisoning, more often than not, 
that's a family member thing. Because a stranger thing is either usually just an act of violence, you know, a stabbing or a shooting or a strangling mm -hmm. or a person you don't know, why would you poison them? Right? It would have to be a planned thing, which usually leads to, okay, if it's planned, it's, it leads to somebody, either an enemy or um, goes back to a motive. And oftentimes, especially with a female victim, you always go back to the family, right? In less than five hours, the jury came back with a guilty verdict and in just over five minutes decided not to recommend clemency. The judge had no choice but to impose a death penalty. Now Rini's life was literally in the hands of his lawyer. He would spend Christmas 1966 wondering what would come first, the date for his retrial or his execution. George Garrett reported on the trial for CKNW. So when you were reporting on Castellani's case, that must have been a bit odd, knowing him and working with him. And Just reported it as fairly as possible. Fallout like for CKW. So he's obviously an employee. He's having an affair, which is bad news yeah. back then. Plus, he's just murdered his wife, which yeah. can't be a good thing. And I think they were really worried about the fallout because it's about the worst public relations you can get. But I think it's it's overpowered by the fact that we were well accepted in the community. We were known for fair news coverage. And I think people appreciated that we covered it just the way we would cover any other right. story. Rini's appeal was heard in February of 1967. The substance of Rini's second trial was the same as the first. The Crown built its case entirely on circumstantial evidence, arguing that Rini murdered his wife so that he would be free to marry his much younger lover. The defence, though, had changed its strategy. This time, Rini Castellani would take the stand to deny that he'd killed his wife, and they would put Rini's daughter Janine, now 13, on the stand, prepped and ready to cast reasonable doubt. The plan was to hammer away at Gloria, Esther's attractive and unbalanced younger sister, under cross-examination. And she was the perfect fall girl. In the early 1960s, Gloria's then-husband, Bud Foxgord, a doctor, had her admitted to the Crease Clinic at Riverview Mental Hospital. Later, she spent time at the Hollywood Sanitarium, a private hospital in New Westminster that treated wealthy patients with alcohol and drug addictions. Just before her divorce in 1964, Gloria had attempted suicide for the third time by slashing her wrists. In the spring of 1965, she'd taken sleeping pills and was taken to hospital. She was there at the same time as Esther. Rini spent three hours on the stand. He said that while he'd lied about his mistress, his divorce, and his Disneyland holiday with Janine, Lolly, and Don, he was telling the truth at all other times. Here's Mike Puteus. What you want to do is get snare them into that web of deceit where they're, no, I didn't, I never visited the hospital that day. I never bought that milkshake. I never mm. was going to go away on a holiday. I don't have a mistress. I was faithful. I didn't do anything with the mortgages. And you do all that kind of stuff, and then you put it to him. It tries devastating for the accused. Especially if it forces him to get on the stand. Defense lawyers put the accused person on the stand. It's usually a Hail Mary. He, even though he's a psychopath, you know, it's going to be hard with a skilled cross-examination not to come across as deceitful, right? Mm. It's pretty hard to get on the stand under oath and lie through your teeth and have anybody believe you. Do you see a lot of psychopaths in your work? Yes, quite a few. 
police deal with psychopaths quite a bit. I mean, there's lots of cold-blooded murders out there that I would characterize as being... Even gang and organized crime people sometimes, I think, are psychopaths. Next up was 13-year-old Janine. Janine told the court that she was a grade 9 student at David Thompson's secondary and had lived with Lolly Miller and her son Don for more than two years. It had been nearly two years since she'd seen her father, she said. In 2018, more than 50 years after the trial, I read Janine the transcript of her testimony back to her. Most of it revolved around what she'd been told to say about her Aunt Gloria, that she was jealous of her mum, and that her mother was scared of her. She was told to say that once she had seen Gloria making jello for Esther, and that night her mother became sick. And, as she was told to say, Janine said she shared a bed with her dad, and Lolly slept with Don on their trip to Disneyland. She also said that her mother used weed killer in the garden, and that she'd seen her mixing it. Janine says she lied on the stand after being coached by her dad's lawyers. Her testimony was completely rehearsed. They told her what questions to expect and how she should answer. You're little, but you have that pit in your stomach that something's not right. I always thought my dad didn't do it because I was just a kid. But when I was in the room talking with my dad's lawyer... It was like kind of coerced, in a sense, to to make me believe the things that I was saying. Remember, Janine, this happened like this, and don't you remember this? And I just sort of went with it, uh, knowing that maybe I wasn't quite sure if that is really what happened. And I wanted to be with him. If you don't mind, I was going to read you yeah. this testimony. I want to hear it. Janine, could you tell us whose idea it was to go to Disneyland? Answer, it was my idea. When did you first get the idea? Quite a while ago, before my mum was in the hospital. When was it you were to go? Well, my dad said, if I passed my grade, that we would go on a summer vacation. But we would have gone anyway, whether my mum died or not. Does that sound bizarre to you? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely bizarre. Because I went with them. It says, now, who went to Disneyland? Can you tell us about that? Me, my dad, Lolly, and her son, Don. Where did you stay when you were going down there? Motel. Tell us about the sleeping arrangements in the motels, Janine. Do you remember? My dad and I slept in a bed and Lolly and Don slept in another bed. Is that true? No. I was told to say that. Now, before your mum went to the hospital, Janine, did you see your mother ever using weed killer? Yes. Did you? Mm, No. Okay, can you tell us something about that? Well, one morning I just saw her mixing it. Do you know why she was mixing it? Yes, because the dandelions bugged her. No. It's a weird way how they did it. It was very like, you know, like has you, as a child, it has you second guessing. You know, like I was sitting there thinking, "Mm, I don't really, in in my own mind, I can remember that, not really remembering, but them talking about it and then like sort of planting it in my head. Well, remember, Janine, she didn't like the dandelions. Remember, you know, then I think, well, maybe she didn't. Like, I don't know, you know, but my mom wasn't a gardener don't remember that at all. The jury did not believe someone other than Rini had motive and opportunity to murder Esther. They did not consider the possibility that Esther, as the defence had suggested, had given herself arsenic, particularly that she did so while paralysed in a hospital bed. The same day that Rini had been sentenced to hang for the second time, Janine had gone back to Lolly's. She told Lolly that she was going ice skating with some friends from school but they're actually going to a party. 
Janine and two other girls were walking down the street at around 8.30pm when Janine started to cross the road. She was hit by a police car who was giving chase to a traffic offender. The roads were slippery and visibility was poor because of heavy rain. The siren on the police car wasn't operating at the time and Janine was thrown 30 metres and when she landed, she had a broken arm, shattered leg, cracked pelvis and one eyelid had been completely ripped off. She was rushed to Vancouver General Hospital. She was in hospital for more than a month and spent her 14th birthday there. She had to learn to walk again and when she finally got out, Lolly threw her a surprise party. Even though he was now on death row for the murder of her mother, Rini retained custody of Janine. He signed over his custodial rights to Lolly and kept a tight hold on his daughter. She was not allowed to see anyone from Esther's side of the family. Less than two weeks before he was scheduled to hang, Rini was one of 16 people to have their death sentence commuted by Prime Minister Lester Pearson's federal government. Rini was now facing a mandatory life sentence without eligibility for parole until he'd served 25 years. He was sent to Masquerie Prison in Abbotsford to serve out his sentence. And I saw him once in the BC pen, and that was just like the movies. It was. Like, I, I look at the movies now and I see people walk in and they sit behind the glass like that. That's how it was. That was the only time I saw him there. And then he was transferred to Matsquee. And Matsquee was a whole different prison than that one. You know, they had a tennis court. They had a baseball field out there. They had churches in there. They had arts and crafts rooms. They had... Oh, yeah. Wow. You could probably better yourself if you were there. And I think that's what the prison was all about. Well, of course my dad would have been the best inmate there. He could talk his way out of anything. Over the years I worked with Janine on Murder by Milkshake, we talked a lot about whether she thought Lolly was involved in her mother's murder or just another one of her father's victims. Do you think Lolly was complicit in the murder? Do you think she knew anything about it? I think she was a victim. Just knowing my dad and how manipulative he is and he draws you in somehow. And I think that he had actually told Lolly that she was sick and that they were planning on getting a divorce. They could start this fresh new life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to think that she knew, I guess, mm-hmm. because I, um, I thought she was so young. She was a, a single mom. This man was going to climb the ladder at CKNW, you know, talking like they were going to go places and do things. And she probably got really drawn in by his personality because he, he had a personality. He, I don't believe my dad told anybody. He's the only one that knew. He's not going to, he's a sociopath. He's not going to divulge that information. How was Lolly with you? Fine. You know, I know that she was a little bit on the strict side. Like, she was probably because she was responsible for me. I don't feel like I had any animosity towards her at all, and I didn't feel like she was mean to me or anything like that. I mean, I had my own bedroom, and, you know, I babysat Dawn a lot because she had to get a a job, you know. I think she was just going to be a kept woman by my father. That's what she thought, and life didn't go like that for her. So sure didn't. I remember she would dance all the time for us, like hula dance. She was good at it. I'm going to give her credit. She was really good at that. You know, she was a good cook. She made meals, and 
I mean, I don't remember cooking that much except snacks for Dawn when she was at work. He told me he crawled into bed with me when he had nightmares, and I consoled him, and I do not remember that. But I said, well, I'm glad I helped you through it. And he was so cute, so cute, right? And I'd never had a little bread, but that's what my dad was saying, right? Oh, you know, remember, you always wanted a little brother. Now you've got one. Yeah, I think those things for me are hard to wrap my head around, even now. How can somebody be... Evil. Evil, like, like, and just carry on with their life. Rini ticked off most, if not all, of the boxes on the psychopath checklist. He lacked empathy and remorse. But he was also charming and charismatic, clever and entertaining. He was intelligent, he was fun, and people liked him. Even after they knew that he'd murdered his wife, people still liked him. One night in 1969, when Don was at his grandparents and Janine was supposed to be staying at her friend Carol's, the two girls met up with a couple of boys they liked from school. My girlfriend Carol and I were out with two boys from school hanging out and I said, well, there's nobody home at my house. Why don't we go there for a while? And so we did. And when we were there, the back door opened and I just saw a figure of a man. I was so terrified that I was caught at home like this. I was so fearful of what was going to happen to me. And uh, the next thing you know, that was the man she was seeing. And he had a key to her house and was coming home. Okay, and I didn't know that. And that was it. Next thing you know, the big black Buick pulled up and all my stuff was packed and I left. And I never saw them again. You know, I didn't really get to say goodbye to Dawn. I just remember leaving and just thinking, oh, wow, what's going to happen now? Janine had been living with Lolly and Don for more than four years and considered them family. She never saw Lolly again, and it would be almost 50 years before she was reunited with Don. She now lived with Rini's sister, her aunt Rose, and went to Delbrook Senior Secondary School in North Vancouver. She became Janine McElroy and she was told not to talk about her mother, her father, or mention anything about her past. She hated living there. The one good thing that did come out of living with Rose is that her aunt put her back in touch with her maternal grandparents and her aunt Gloria. As soon as she was old enough, Janine moved in with a friend Carol's family and started a job at BC Rail. Rini was put in jail for life, but within a couple of years, he was getting day parole so that he could work at community services in Abbotsford. He would frequently get weekend passes, and Janine remembers him turning up with different women to visit or having her come out and stay at one of these women's homes. There were several, and Janine can't remember their names. He told me they're sponsors. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what you call them. I had met at least three or four women that he was friendly with and he had slept with. I just saw my dad in a whole different way, and I was just uneasy with him having a lot of women in his life. It was just really weird, and he never talked about my mom. He never, ever put his arms around me and said, I didn't do it. He never did. You know, that's all I wanted to hear. When Janine was 19, she moved into a basement suite with a friend. One night, they went to a dance, and Janine saw the young guy that she'd been dating with a girl that she worked with. She was devastated and she told her friends that she was going to walk home. She got about halfway there when she noticed a man was following her. 
He grabbed her from behind and sexually assaulted her. She never saw his face. Janine called her father in prison. He told her that he didn't want the police involved, didn't want it in the papers. He had convinced Janine that anything that she did could negatively affect him from getting parole. The following weekend, he was out on a pass and he showed up at Janine's with a different woman this time and a box of chocolate-covered cherries. Janine continued to visit her father in jail and while she still thought he was innocent, she was starting to have some doubt. Janine and Dale were living together and Rini would drop by unexpectedly on one of his weekend passes usually driven by a different woman. Janine and Dale found the visits had a threatening undertone and she started to become afraid of Rennie. Once when she was visiting him at Masqui, he slipped her a threatening note. When Janine turned 21, she received a settlement from a car accident six years earlier. Her share was $19,000. The other $7,000 went to her lawyer's. She took part of the money and bought a 1972 MGB sports car. She and Dale planned a road trip to Banff and Jasper. Rini had a weekend pass and asked them to visit him before they left for their trip. The address he gave them turned out to be a trailer park in Abbotsford. Rini was staying with yet another woman. Janine doesn't remember her name, just that she was young and had a small boy with a heart problem. There was an old garage at the back of the house and Janine was surprised to see some of her childhood things in there. There was a doll crib that her father had made her when she was little and some of her mother's figurines. Rini didn't say how he got them or where he'd kept them over the years he'd been in prison and Janine never saw them again after that day. That night, Rini made spaghetti for dinner and Janine and Dale slept over in the living room. The next day, he told her that he was entitled to some of the money from her settlement, that she owed it to him and he would use it to buy a car so they could do things together. Dale always supported her decision to see her father, and he would drive her to the prison and wait for her in the car. But the visits weren't going well. Rini made it clear that he didn't like Dale. He was unhappy that Janine was starting to doubt him, and he was furious that Janine would not give him any money from her accident settlement. Not long afterwards, she had a visit from a friend of her father's. He told her to smarten up that her bad behaviour was negatively affecting her father's chances at parole. For the first time since her father's conviction, Janine stopped visiting him in jail. She never saw him again. Rini was released on full parole in May 1979 and immediately took a full-time job with CFVR Abbotsford. He became Rini the Roadrunner because he did the radio station's traffic reports. He also drove around town in a company car, passing out promotional gifts from the station. Here's George Garrett. Well, I was going to tell you the shock that uh, I didn't realise he was on parole. And I was at our station in uh, Abbotsford. They were on our news network, so I dropped in to say hello. And through the door from their library comes this fairly tall guy. George, how are you? I said, Ray. It's as though I saw a ghost. And he, he recognized, you know, that I was shocked. And he said, it's okay. He said, I'm on parole. He said, I've got a job here in the promotion department. I said, oh, good for you. How are you? All this stuff, you know. And I'm, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking you should be in jail. Soon after that encounter with George Garrett, Rini married again, moved to Vancouver Island, 
and started work at CKLG Nanaimo. He never tried to contact Janine again. In a fitting piece of karma, he died from pancreatic cancer in 1982. He was 56 years old. I met with Janine and her daughter Ashley on June 25, 2017, two Sundays after my book launch for Blood, Sweat and Fear. We talked for hours. After I got home, I sent Janine an email with Don Miller's phone number. She couldn't wait and she phoned him straight away. They looked at their work schedules and family commitments and decided the first date they could meet was July 11th. Janine didn't tell Don at the time, but July 11th was the date of her mother's death. The Castellanis and the Millers met at a Boston pizza in Maple Ridge. Janine and her daughters, Ashley and Lindsay, arrived first and sat on one side of the booth. They ordered sangria. Janine sat at the end because she wanted to see Don as soon as he came in. She knew who he was, she says, as soon as she saw his eyes. They had an instant connection. Nearly 50 years had passed since they'd last seen or heard anything about each other. In that time, both had married and had two children. Two girls for Janine, a boy and a girl for Don. Janine lost her husband Dale in 2005. Don and his wife Debbie lost their daughter, who, like Janine's younger daughter, was also named Ashley. She died from the H1N1 virus. They talked about television shows they remembered watching over the more than four years they'd lived together as brother and sister. They talked about the trip to Disneyland with Rini and Lolly, taken the day after Esther's funeral. Janine and Don now talk on the phone a few times a month, and their families meet up regularly. What's been the hardest thing out of all of this, looking back? Well, obviously losing my mom, and going through all of those years thinking that my father was innocent, listening to him, you know, taking time out of my life to go visit him all the time, taking buses out there to see him when he knew full well what he did. Going to the prison, going to concerts, I had a tour of the prison, visiting him and and feeling so excited to see him. I looked up to him and that's the part that hurts because I really did believe in him. He had me fooled for a long time. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. If you've enjoyed Murder by Milkshake, there's tons more information, photos and interviews in my book by the same title. I've put a link to Murder by Milkshake in my show notes on my website at evelazarus.com. If you haven't already, check out my 12-episode podcast, Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. 
You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.